0: The best preparation for death is to live a fully engaged life now. And one of the crazy things is one of the best tools to live a fully engaged life now is the knowledge that one day I will die.
1: This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience. Dr. Fred Gruy is a hospice chaplain, an author, and a fellow podcaster. Over the past 15 years, he has served more than 3,000 people who have died. In our conversation, he explains what the dying have taught him about living. Dr. Gruy, what were some of those formative life experiences that led you to become a hospice chaplain?
0: Christina, that's a, that's a good question to start, I guess, start at the beginning. Uh, in my uh, mid-20s, I had uh, just graduated from college, uh, from West Virginia University. I had a degree, a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Acting and Directing, and uh, my mother, was dying uh, from a seven-year battle of cancer. It it started when she was thirty-seven. Uh, they found cancer in her breasts, and in that day and age, uh, you know, they did the double mastectomy. And then uh, several years later, it reemerged in her uterus, and she had a hysterectomy. And then it evolved into her bones. And the last uh, year of her life was particularly difficult, uh, battling bone cancer. As I say, I just graduated from college. My mom was 44, and I moved home to help uh, care for her. My sisters were in high school. My dad was working, so I uh, moved home to help provide care for her as uh, the last year of her life, or well, the last few months. And that was an incredibly difficult experience. I mean, i it pulled a strength and kindness out of me I didn't know I had, and uh, my mother and I grew very close. It was a privilege for me to help care for this woman that had birthed me, had nurtured me, loved me, and in a very real and tangible way, I was able to give back and uh, that experience, as i say was was really hard. I remember one particular event i and I should tell you, Christina, when I was in college, I was I was very overweight. I, w- I weighed about 270 pounds or something. And uh, so I moved home to care for her, as I say. And one night we were uh, in the, the family room, which was a, a lower room added onto the house. And she was on the couch, and I was watching TV laying on the floor. And uh, she said, you know, do you want some ice cream? And I laughingly thought, oh, yeah, right, because my mother was on crutches at that point. And uh, there were 10 stairs to get up out of the family room into the rest of the house. And so, you know, we're watching TV and she goes, you want some ice cream? I said, yeah, right. Sure, sure. I'll take some ice cream. Well, you know, a little bit later, she hobbled up off the couch and was going up the stairs on her crutches. And and I had forgotten and I, I thought she was just going to the bathroom or something. Well, about 15 minutes later, here she comes back down those steps, juggling with her crutches, this bowl of ice cream. And I just felt like such a load. What a, oh my God, mom, what are you doing? But that was so important for her to be able to to give back and feel like a mom again, doing something for me. And it was so, it was moments like that that were so, so difficult and yet so incredibly bonding And, uh, after she passed away, you know, I have felt very good ever since knowing I did everything I could to care for her and her for me and how close we became. And so that, and then, you know, years later, I, I cared for another friend who died of AIDS and those two experiences, um, as I say, were very difficult, but they pulled the best out of They pulled stuff out of me I didn't know I had, Christina. And so that became when it, when it came time for me to look for uh, a different career in the ministry, as they say, after years of pastoring, and I had sort of burned out on that. I thought, well, a hospice chaplain might not be a bad idea because I know how good it was for me as a human being to do that kind of work. And so I've been doing it for the last 15 years.
1: You also speak about the impermanence of people, themselves, their bodies, possessions as well. And I was so sorry to read that you lost your home in the Almeda wildfire that raced across Oregon last summer. How did you process that experience?
0: Well, Christine, I don't know that I have. I mean, I'm still in the process of that because right now, actually, we're uh, beginning to looking to, to buy a place to move into, and it has brought up all those feelings. But that, uh, you know, it's one of those things. I I think when people, you do a certain kind of work and and you're dealing with it from one side, I guess, of the emotion, and then when it's you, it's like everything you learn just goes right out the window. It, uh, the impermanence of, of life, while I have facilitated in helping people cope with that for years, that experience of the wildfire and the loss of everything that I own in one afternoon— except for my car and my computer and the clothes I was wearing. And my wife safely got out in her car and our dog, Shanti, the the poodle. Uh, We made it safe. But other than that, everything we owned uh, was gone in an afternoon. And the impermanence of that struck deeply. And there are so many emotions uh, that you go through. I I had the experience for the first time in my life. I mean, I am certainly a uh, product of white privilege, and but I experienced what it was to become a refugee. For you know, the first couple of weeks, uh, we had nowhere to go, nowhere to be, and and people were trying to give us things, which was really kind, but we couldn't take them because when you don't have anywhere to be. You can't accept things unless you can carry them because all you can do is carry what you've got. And so that experience has been incredibly profound, and I have learned in a visceral and in a gut-level way just the impermanence of life and how things can change on a dime, Uh, out of the blue. For years, you know, uh, Chris, as a minister... You know, I'm certainly a Bible literate. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible for for years and years, and I've never heard anybody preach on it, but it's in uh, the letter of James, which is in the Christian scriptures or the New Testament. James 4.14 says, Whereas you do not know about tomorrow, what is your life? You are a mist, a vapor that appears for a short time and then disappears. Now I've loved that verse because for me what it does is it— certainly reminds me of how impermanent everything is. But it also reminds me not to take myself so doggone seriously. In 50 years, nobody will even know I ever lived or I ever even existed. So why do I get so upset about so many things or get so worked up? It's just silliness. And so the impermanence uh, of everybody's life, and that certainly captures the the feeling of so many of the folks that I meet in hospice work, the impermanence of their life, and it terrifies their loved ones because it brings home to their loved ones how impermanent their life is as well. And it's just a reality. It is a reality that we try to hide from, but it—it uh, it is there. And for me, over the years in hospice work, just learning to accept that, and to try to go with the flow of that, I think is one of the most important things we can do to prepare for the eventuality of our own uh, demise.
1: Why is there such a taboo in our society around the subject of death?
0: I don't know why there is such a taboo, but boy, there you know there there is. I mean, we have tried to keep it at arm's length. Not just the, Christina, not just death, but even aging. I mean, our culture, you know, how many uh, procedures are done to help people look young and attractive and vibrant, and our culture is just consumed with the the illusion of youth and vibrancy. But uh, we are uh, afraid of death in, in, in very real ways. And And I have just come to learn it's just a natural part of life. I think if there's anything I do for the people that I serve, the the patients that I get to, to companion with on their last, you know, the last stages of their journey. It's not that I'm all that religious or we talk about deeply spiritual things. I think the greatest gift that I'm able to bring, from, and, and this comes from the learning of just being with so many folks, is it's just natural. It's just a natural part of life. The wonderful mythologist uh, Joseph Campbell, I don't know if you're, you're probably familiar with some of his work. He had a wonderful series of interviews with, uh, on, on PBS with Bill Moyers. But Joseph Campbell says, you know, all of life um, is ne- necessitated by death. The, the food you and I, the salad you may have had for lunch today, a week ago, that was all living stuff the, the lettuce and the carrots and uh, the meat that we eat. So all of our life is dependent upon death. And that is just the great circle of the universe you and I live in that all of life uh, requires death at some point. And so it's just a natural part of everything, and you can't fight it. It's just reality. But our culture, for whatever reasons, has chosen to put it in... And and the language we use, you know, well, he's a fighter. He's not ready to fight. You know, it's just... It's not a fight. It's just part of the reality of the web of of life that we are. That life necessitates death, and death is a part of life, and we can't separate it. But but we have tried, and we have not done a great job. And I think the whole hospice movement has helped to normalize that somewhat. The hospice movement started here in this country in the late sixties by the wonderful Dame Cicely Saunders from England who wanted to, uh, and her point when she started the whole hospice movement, it was not to help people die, but it was to help people get the most quality of life possible out of every day as long as we can until we can't anymore. And so, yeah, it is a, It is a cultural thing. All cultures uh, aren't as terrified of death as we are in North America, but, but we are, and I think it's changing a little bit, but slow to do so.
1: Over half a million Americans have died as a result of COVID-19. What has the pandemic taught you?
0: Like the Almeida fire you referenced earlier, the pandemic has taught me how vulnerable and uncertain all of life is. Uh, where I live in southern Oregon, I live right across the border of California. So as you are escaping California on Interstate 5 and you head into Oregon, I live in the first town you come to. And so this is somewhat of a rural area where I live. We're we're about five miles south of uh, Portland and five miles north of the Bay Area, San Francisco and Oakland and that. So we're sort of in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) And uh, so we have not been terribly hard hit by the pandemic, certainly not like New York City or L.A. or uh, uh, the other major metropolitan areas of our country. But it has uh, changed very much the way we live here. The social isolation has been incredibly difficult, and it is a reminder again of how fragile this gift of life is and how impermanent it is. I mean, two years ago, a virus that none of us had ever heard about. has radically changed our whole experience of culture in North America. And and COVID-19 is not the first. As I look back over the last 10 years, you know, working in the medical field as I do, we've had uh, the avian flu. We've had the swine flu. We've had uh, MRSA. Uh, There's been a number of things. And and people, you know, I talk to, they say, oh, I can't wait for this all to get over and things settle down. I said, settle down. Who knows what's ahead of us? It's COVID-19 now. Who knows what's coming down the pipeline that uh, we will have yet to experience and just constant reminders of how fragile and impermanent life is. And the lesson for me And, Christina, this is the biggest thing I've learned out of all the years I've been doing this. Go live large now while you can, because tomorrow is promised to none of us. And so the best preparation, I call it the the dying well paradox, the best preparation for death is to live a fully engaged life now. And one of the crazy things is one of the best tools to live a fully engaged life now is the knowledge that one day I will die.
1: I was born in Germany to a Protestant mother, a Lutheran in the tradition of Martin Luther. In college, I converted to Catholicism. After college, when I met my future husband, I converted to Judaism, And today, I'm a Reformed Jew, but I'm fairly agnostic. At my core, I would say I'm really simply a humanist, and that's the basis for my struggle with organized religion, especially the more conservative and orthodox practices. You yourself were an evangelical preacher before you became a hospice chaplain. How do you help people who don't necessarily share your religious beliefs appreciate what religion has to offer?
0: Wow. You know, you and I remarkably have a lot of uh, similarities. My, uh, I grew up in a Catholic family. My mother was Jewish by birth, uh, not religiously so. Uh, my mother and grandmother were always afraid if anybody found out they were Jewish that they would be marginalized or um, profiled or whatever. So they didn't want anybody to know. So they were not uh, religiously uh, Jewish. And I know there are—I've met many Jewish folks— uh, in my own life, that have had a similar background, you know, family growing up. But anyway, my mother converted to Catholicism when I was two, and then I became a, uh, so I was raised Catholic and became a, got involved in the Catholic uh, Charismatic Renewal, and then became a Pentecostal Charismatic Minister for many years. And for the last, uh, oh, I guess 15, 20 years, I've been a, a member of the United Church of Christ, which is a liberal mainline denomination group. So, so I have a, a varied background as well. Many of the folks, Christina, that I meet are not religious at all, particularly Oregon is one of the most unchurched states in the country, and particularly in hospice work, if if someone's already deeply connected with a faith community, they don't want the chaplain because they're supported by their own group, and, and that's fine. I mean, they... They have their own minister or a mom or rabbi or, or teacher or whatever to support them. And that's great. So many, many of the people that I meet uh, are not affiliated with any particular kind of faith community. And I have, I'm have i somewhat of a religioholic myself. I've, I've studied uh, quite a bit of, of Buddhism and Taoism. Uh, I know a lot of the... Uh, Protestant uh, Christian denominations, I I know a lot of uh, those that I've studied, and uh, certainly Catholicism and Judaism. I'm I'm not as uh, literate on uh, Islam, but in my study of all these different faiths and religions, I think the main point, the best that religion has to offer when it's really doing its job, when religion is at its finest, It's helping us all become more compassionate and wise and finding a sense of equanimity or peace and acceptance about the reality around us. That's, for me, when religion's at its best. And I think one of the things all of the major faith traditions try to do is explain or give context to this experience of death, what it is, why it is, what happens afterwards. I mean, that's one of the functions that we expect of religion to give us answers for this great mystery that we will all encounter. And when it's not, when it's destructive, it can just work people up into a frenzy and and make them afraid. And I think that's uh, a failing when religion is not uh, doing what it uh, could do and should do. And, when, and, and this is often not the case of the religious leaders, the, the great founders of the traditions, the Buddha, Jesus, Moses, uh, uh, Muhammad. It, it was their followers that really uh, uh, ginned up a lot of the fear and anxiety and who's right and who's wrong. But the original founders of these great traditions, Lao Tzu, uh, seemed to have uh, more equanimity than many of the followers have had.
1: On the subject of death with dignity, physician-assisted dying or assisted suicide, that's legal in your state of Oregon, along with seven other states, plus the Washington, D.C. area. I agree that terminally ill people themselves, not the politicians or religious leaders, should be making end-of-life decisions. But what's your position
0: well, Christina, that's a very important question, and you could get me fired with that question. I work, to give you some context, I work for a very, very large Catholic health system, Providence Health System, here in the Northwest, where the West really now, has about 120,000 employees. It's either the third or fifth largest system in the country. And because of uh, the Catholic heritage, the organization I work for is very opposed to physician-assisted death. And as a chaplain, we're trained. We're not to take positions or say publicly what we think about. But here's what I can say, and and I have my own opinions. But here's what I will say. The one thing I would uh, ask you to consider in the way you phrased your question, do I have a right to my own life? Do I have a right to end my own life? And I would say that is uh, a result of the deep, what I would call heresy of individualism that we have propagated in our culture. We talked earlier about how our culture is terrified of death. I think another thing our culture has done that is not all that helpful has propagated this whole idea that I'm an individual, I'm in charge of my own damn life, and nobody can tell me what to do. As a person of faith, and, you know, my faith centers on the, the book of the Bible, there's nothing in the Bible at all that is um, positive about the idea of individualism. There's not one verse in the Bible. I've read the thing through cover to cover at least six times. Portions of it hundreds. And there's not one verse in the Bible anywhere that is supportive of the idea of individualism. And my take on the death with dignity is this. If I choose to do what I want with my own life and disregard the people that love me, am I doing them a service? And I have uh, served some people that have made the choice. And Sometimes, not always, there are family members not comfortable with it, and it causes a great deal of grief and suffering for them, survivors. And so for me, the whole idea that I have a right to my own life or to end it however I want without taking into consideration the people I am a part of, the web of my heart, the, the relationships that I have, the people that love me and that I love, I have responsibilities to them that need to be taken into consideration. And so I think to, to just make it a simple question of it, is it my right? Well, what about my obligations to the people that love me and care for me? And so I think that has to be part of the whole conversation.
1: So the two main values in our culture that seem to be at odds with a meaningful life are our independence streak and our material consumption. What do you think?
0: Amen, sister. Amen. I'm with you. Our insatiable drive for consumption, consuming things. I mean, well, I look back. You remember after 9-11? And President Bush came on TV and said, all right, here's the best thing you can do. Go shop. Our whole culture is is like this insatiable need. We have to buy stuff so that people can make stuff, to sell stuff, so that we can buy stuff. It's absurd. And as a result, we have much more than in North America than really any of us really needs. I mean, I, I have wondered if the hoarding, That most of us in this country do is underlies the, is one of the underlying symptoms of why we have so much mental health issues and why so many people have to take drugs to sedate themselves because we realize there are so many people in the world that don't have nearly as much as we do, and we have so much. And the inequity of that, I think, can be deeply disturbing if we sit with it. And so, yes, our consumerism and our are uh, uh, ignoring the fact that we are interconnected with each other and that we need each other and we are obligated to each other. These two things are i I would very much agree part of the um disease of our culture and I think at this point as we look at the political unrest in this country and so much of what's going on I think some of this is unraveling the whole idea of the, the consumerist approach and the individual approach it's unraveling before our eyes because it is not sustainable and it's not accurate now I wish to God I had answers and solutions for this it's easy to be a critic and say oh that's bad that's bad The solutions, you know, I think somehow we have to get to the place where we realize we're all in this together. And it's not just enough. If me and my family have enough food and a safe place to live, helping you to ensure you and your family have the same is really important. And it's important for my mental health and well-being as it's important for your safety and physical well-being because we're in this together. And until we get to that place, I, I, don't, I don't see a lot of the, uh, the problems going away. In fact, I, I will reference, there is a, a, you're familiar with the radio program, I think on NPR, um, On Being with Krista Trippett. A couple of years ago, she had the leader of the South African Truth and Reconciliation commission on, and I forget his name right now. It's a difficult to pronounce name. But after Mandela became president, they started the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to try to heal the wounds that apartheid had done for so many years in their nation. And what this leader of the commission found was that people can do really horrible things and that just coming to the truth is not healing. It's not helpful in all situations the primary focus must be on a commitment to how can you and I be reconciled. If, if we make that basic commitment that you and I are in this life together and we want to be reconciled to ensure the best for each other and each other's families, in that context, truth can be helpful. But if the truth is not used to reconcile each other, it can be used as a tool to bludgeon, wound, and kill others. And so it's it's not helpful. It was a wonderful, powerful insight that uh, we have to get to the place of realizing in not just some mystical or spiritual sense, but in a very real sense, we all need each other, and we're in this
1: together. Why do you think people fear death?
0: My opinion is is because we want to be in control. We want to be in charge. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I don't want to need anybody. The great, uh, I call it the great American mortal sin. Of all the people that I meet, you know, in hospice work, most, as I say, are not religious. But the one thing that terrifies everybody I meet Everybody, regardless of their religion or their economic background or their educational background or their gender or their race, the one thing that terrifies everybody I meet is the fear of becoming needy. I call it the great American mortal sin. We, we are terrified of having to need others. And yet I think that's where our salvation as a species, as a people, as a culture lies in the realization we do need each other. We're all needy. We just try to hide it. And for most of our lives, we can, but it's hard to hide the reality of that when you're dying and you can't toilet yourself anymore and you can't get up and go where you want or feed yourself anymore. You can't hide from that reality. But the truth is we do need each other. Uh, But the illusion is that we want to be in control, in charge. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And I think that fuels this whole idea of individualism. But it really is about being in control.
1: Why do we place a premium on an afterlife?
0: Christina, this may shock you as a hospice chaplain, but when people ask me about the afterlife, my standard response is, I don't know, I've never been there. (laughs) I have my own beliefs. One of the great things about chaplain training, to become a chaplain, a board-certified chaplain, I should say, it's really hard. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, five years of training. And one of the things it did was to liberate me from foisting my beliefs and opinions on anybody else. Now, I have strong beliefs, And they fuel me, and they're important to me. But I've been liberated on shoving them on anybody else because they work for me. That doesn't mean they'll work for you. And so I have opinions and beliefs about the afterlife, but nobody really knows. None of us has ever been there. And I know people speak with absolute certitude about the afterlife. And it's a certitude I just don't share. Now, I trust and hope That it's going to be really good. But I think people that are certain of such things can do incredibly hurtful things in the name of religion, like fly airplanes into buildings or decapitate people or ostracize people unless you believe the way I do. You can't come to my church or you will burn forever in the eternal fire pits of hell. I mean, I think people that have great certainty about the afterlife have done uh, really harmful things to the name of religion and to other human beings. And so I here, here's the dance I try to do. Look, I am a Jesus person. I love Jesus. And I try the best I can to follow him. But I also, and I want to believe passionately what I believe. I don't want to just wa- sleepwalk through life as a milk toast, not committing to anything. I want to passionately believe what I believe and try to live it out. But at the same time, I try to hold it all very lightly because I realize in many ways I'm probably wrong. And there are things I need to learn.
1: You've served over 3,000 people who have died. What have the dying taught you about living?
0: That's a great question. And that's why I wrote my first book, What the Dying Have Taught Me About Living. So that's kudos to you for allowing me to give a shameless plug. But uh, it boils down to, f- I've boiled it down to four things. Now, you got to realize when you show up, Uh, in hospice and you announce you're the chaplain everybody starts to act in a certain way like I get to hear so much nonsense sometimes like uh, oh we're all good here just waiting to go be with God yep we're all ready ready to go and I know they're lying and they know it's just the dance you do when the minister shows up because you got to talk religious ease to the minister because that's what the minister expects and so I try to break through that and the way I cut through that, I, I, regardless of what anybody's faith background or re- professed religion is, the things I listen for, to me, that are the signs of deep spiritual health. And there are four of them. I call them my spiritual vital signs. If, if you ever spent the night in a hospital, you know what vital signs are. They come in every hour to wake you up to check your blood pressure and your oxygen saturation and your temperature and your pulse rate and all these things. These are just monitors There are numbers that go up and down, so they're not fixed. But there's a safe range to stay in, and it gives the doctors and nurses the relative health of your body. Well, I've developed what I call my spiritual vital signs. And these are the four things I look for, regardless of religion, that tell me the relative health of somebody's soul. Now, these are just my own criteria. You can make your own. But I look for generosity, gratitude, an acceptance of reality, and an ability to shower the people you love with love. And I know I stole the last one from James Taylor, but it's still worthwhile. So I look for, is this person generous? And I don't just mean with money. I mean with their time, with their emotions, with their thoughts, with their heart. Is this person generous. So I'm always trying to cultivate generosity in my own life because I just see at the end how important that is. And gratitude, I, well, gratitude is one of those crazy things. I, I've i learned the more I can find to be grateful for, I find more things to be grateful for. And conversely, the more I find to bitch about, the more I'll find to bitch about. And so I want to cultivate gratitude in my life you want when you're with someone who's grateful for the it's like a magnet you just want to be with them and an ability to accept reality as it is uh, that's important to accept all right here's the cards here's where we're at we're going to make the best of this situation and not trying to deny reality but to enter fully into it and then again, the, the ability to love the people in your world. Because at the end, that's what really matters. You know, the 3,000 folks or more that I've been with, I've never once had anybody say to me, boy, I wish I'd have gone to more football games. Or I wish I'd have spent more time online or gone shopping at the mall more or Whatever. What really matters is the time they spent with the people that they love. That's what matters at the end. So I want to do that now while I can. Because as we talked about earlier, there's no guarantee I'm going to have opportunity to do this tomorrow.
1: What are some of the other things that the dying have told you with respect to their regrets? I
0: think the, the, other, the other biggie is uh, unforgiveness. You know, carrying grudges when you when you come to the end you just realize how silly all that is there's Anne Lamott is a writer i really enjoy very much and she's got a great line unforgiveness is like drinking rat poison hoping the rat will die and our inability to forgive those that have wounded us uh, truncates our ability to live but i met this lady who was a vibrant? She she was tall and thin and had a voice like a laugh, like Phyllis Diller, and she was so full of life. And in our uh, first meeting, she asked me. She says, uh, "How do you get over forgiveness? How do you how do you forgive somebody, or how do you how do you get over the pain of that?" And I looked at her and said, "Well, you're not going to like what I tell you." She goes, "Go ahead, tell me what whatever. How do I get over this pain?" I said, "You got to forgive them. And she goes, you're right. I don't like your answer. But as I learned her story, she had grown up. uh, She had idolized her father. Her father was a wonderful man who she just adored. Her mother died at an early age. Her father remarried, and uh, her stepmother was not kind to her and stole her father's affections, which was just awful. In fact, my friend that I was serving, who was dying, admitted to me at one point when her stepmother died, my friend went and actually peed on her grave. (laughs) She was so angry with her. She not only stole her father's affections, but all of his money and the inheritance she was supposed to receive, the stepmother got. And so it was incredibly painful. And... uh, she just couldn't seem to get past that. And then one day, and, and she was one of the people that never called for me to come visit her. I would always call every couple of weeks, hey, you up for a visit? And she would let me know if she was into it or not. But one time she called and she said, you need to come out here. I said, okay. So I went out to see her. And she just looked at me and she said, your advice is right. I said, what do you mean? She said, I have found so much peace since forgiving my stepmother. Now, I don't know how she did it, but in some way, somehow, she did that. And it uh, profoundly affected her remaining months of life in, in a good way. And so that's, it's a big deal. Learning, learning how to forgive is really important.
1: Talk a little bit about people who go through the motions in life they're basically on autopilot and they're not really living.
0: You read about the Buddhists who come to Satori or an awakening or Christians who are born again and have this incredible experience or whatever, you know. Those seasons last for a while, but then we fall back asleep or we get back. It's not like once you get there, now it's done for good and you just live the perfect life. So we go through seasons of this where you have an awakening or you realize this deep truth and it liberates you in so many ways. But then life creeps back in and the bills need to be paid and you got to clean up after your dog when he soils in the neighbor's lawn. And you got traffic to deal with and emails from people that are bugging you, you know, all that. So it, it creeps back. So we go through these cycles and seasons of awakening and a. And living large, and then we fall back asleep and and so it's a constant uh, effort to continue to 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 feed those things that help us live a fully engaged life. Whatever spiritual practice you have it's it's important to to allow that to constantly call you back to the way you want to live, the way you want to be, the kind of human being that you want to be because there's so much in this in this world of, of life as you and I, you know, I can watch the news and it make me angry or upset. So it, it's it takes constant vigilance, but it's a worthy goal. And uh, death, you know, that's one of the things I do like about my friend death, and I consider him a colleague, is he helps people wake up at the end because when he arrives, there's nowhere else to hide. Uh, and I, I wrote this piece once called Why is the Grim Reaper So Grim? And I think the, the punchline is, is I think the Grim Reaper is, you know, we have this image of the Grim Reaper with the hood and the cowl and the scythe, and uh, you, you rarely see his face. And I think the Grim Reaper is so grim because when he comes to collect people, at the end so many have never really lived and he weeps for all the times that we refused to give love or to receive love because we didn't think we were worthy and he weeps over all the missed opportunities we had to really live and so for me when it's my turn and he comes for me i hope there is a a smile on the grim reaper, and a nod that I got it, and that I lived as fully engaged as I could, because that, to me, is is what this gift of life is all about—to live fully.
1: You've written about creating an ethical will. Could you describe the elements of that?
0: Yeah, that has been one of my major projects. Uh, I call it uh, an ethical will, which has certainly been around for years, and. Uh, or a life review what i call mine is a uh, to pass along a, a a soul or a blessing An ethical will is a wonderful thing where you know as someone is nearing the end of their life they they gather together what they've learned in life what they found to be really important and they put it together in some sort of a um, mechanism or a gift to be passed on to all of their survivors. So it may be a book of my favorite quotes, or it may be, here's the things I've learned in life, my undeniable truths that I've learned, or here's what's really important. And you put it into a scrapbook and give it to all the people in your family. And it's a way to remember me once I'm gone. And I, th- those are wonderful. But I'd like to take that a step further and, and, and this goes, again, to my own religious roots of uh, Judeo-Christianity. And I looked at, uh, in, in the, uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, the first book of the Bible, Genesis. At the end of Genesis, Jacob, uh, one of the three patriarchs, the last two chapters is him giving a specific, unique blessing to his children. And he called them in one by one. And he looked at them and told them what was special and beautiful and wonderful about each of them. And I think that's an incredibly profound gift that we can give. So instead of me just amassing, here's all the things I've learned in life that are really important now. All you people here, go do with it what you want. But if I call each person close to me as I'm on my deathbed or hopefully even before then this is does not have to be a deathbed ritual it can be certainly done before then but if I call my son in and I look at him and I tell him what's what I see in him that's uniquely special and beautiful and wonderful and sort of to call that into forth and if you feel like praying if that's part of your spiritual practice then to say a prayer for that or whatever it may be. and But in this, to give a blessing, it, it, there's several things that are important. One, it has to be something that's, that's really, really there. It, it has to be something that's real, that, that's really in you so that the blessing has something to connect with so i can't just make up some pretty words or and it shouldn't be manipulative like you know i hope to have grandchildren before i die that's not a blessing that's you know it it it's not to manipulate this other person but to call forth beauty that you see in them that they may not see themselves so it needs to be real, and you call it forth, and you commit yourself to help that happen. Like if I, if I believe, for example, my son, who is wonderful, and I say, you have a brilliant mind, and I want to help contribute to that, so I'm going to put money towards your college education, or I want to see you do this because you are really, really good at this. So it's something you participate in, you call forth, and it's real. What a gift, to be able to receive that before someone passes away, it can be liberating and live for it, can be part of a legacy of that person's life that lives in my life for years to come. So I think the giving of a blessing is incredibly important to do before we leave this uh, experience of life on this planet.
1: Do you have any parting thoughts that you'd like to share before we wrap up?
0: Don't allow the fear of not enough to truncate your ability to love and to give yourself, but to give, give, give from your heart. And I think you will be shocked at the life that is given back to you as a uh, in recompense.
1: Dr. Grewey is a podcaster and the author of two books. Links are provided in the show notes for this episode. If you would like to create your own ethical will by sharing your life story, let me know. I'm happy to record an interview at no charge. You can reach me on social media at Diary of a Nation or send an email to diaryofanation at gmail.com.